I want to give you just, uh, before I get into the message, uh, a very brief report on the uh, meeting that I attended uh, this past week. I know you, would, you will be interested. Uh, you remember I sort of hightailed it out of here uh, last Sunday to uh, be able to catch a plane in Atlanta uh, going to a um, meeting called the LAPCO meeting. LAPCO means Leadership Alliance of Pregnancy Center Organizations. And this is an annual meeting that brings together all the key leaders in the pregnancy center movement. Uh, all the uh, organizations that uh, minister nationwide to pregnancy centers. There are about uh, uh, 15 key organizations, um, and uh, it, it's a wonderful meeting. Uh, we spend the first day uh, from morning to evening doing nothing but praying, uh, praying for the movement that God will bless and anoint and then the second day is a day more of uh, business. I just want to share with you, just encourage you, uh, God is wonderfully blessing the pregnancy centers uh, throughout the uh, country. Uh, the latest statistics that we have, just to give you an idea to, to encourage you, in 2017, uh, there were well over 900,000 new clients that came through our pregnancy centers. Uh, we, de- we now have uh, over 2,700 pregnancy centers in the nation, so over 2,700 uh, pregnancy centers that now greatly outnumber the, the abortion clinics in the country. Again, over uh, 900,000 first-time clients. We uh, performed over 400,000 ultrasounds in 2017. Uh, 24,000 women went through post-abortion uh, counseling healing uh, to know God's uh, forgiveness. And one of the uh, stats that really impressed me. So many of the pregnancy centers have an opportunity to get into their schools to present sexual abstinence programs. And in 2017, over a million students were reached uh, with those uh, programs. And of course, all of that translates into literally tens of thousands of babies being saved from abortion. Uh, To have the opportunity to discover their God-given destiny. And of course... Tens of thousands of uh, women and uh, their boyfriends, others coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'll I'll leave you with this. This will definitely warm your heart. I don't know if any of you, uh, how many of you heard about the Live in New York event uh, took place this spring. Remember New York passed that just horrendous uh, abortion law, uh, legalizing abortion all the way to birth. And you remember how it was so sadly applauded in their legislature. They lit up the Empire State Building to celebrate the passage of that, uh, that law. With Jim Daly of Focus on the Family, Focus on the Family is one of the member organizations of this LAPCO group, so they're always present. He said that can't go uh, without a response. And so Focus, uh, along with some other uh, pro-life organizations uh, did what they called Alive in New York. It was uh, uh, just a single day. It was a several-hour event right at Times Square, right literally in Times Square, uh, where they had uh, several speakers. And then it climaxed with an ultrasound being done on Abby Johnson. Abby jo- How many of you saw Unplanned, the movie Unplanned? If you have not seen that, please see that. It's about a a woman that uh, uh, not only had an abortion, but became the director of an abortion clinic, reversed her position, great pro-life champion uh, today. And uh, she's 
she was pregnant, and so it climaxed with an ultrasound, putting it on the, the big screens there in Times Square uh, with the audio and everything. Uh, they said there were so many protesters there. They were banging drums, playing tubas. They said they could not have been more vile. Uh, in their language, they just continually were screaming, yelling throughout the entire event. They said many of the speakers would actually pause and they would lead the entire group in praying for the protesters. So they said there was a stark contrast between the demeanor of the protesters and, uh, and those that were having this event. Uh, but when they came to the uh, climax, I was talking to Robin who is the woman at Focus that oversees their Sanctity of Life ministry. And she was in a mobile unit looking at a small screen of what was being put up. And uh, she said, Abby's baby in the womb was not initially cooperating. They would put the scope on, and it's like the baby would turn its back. And they were using a 4D ultrasound on this event, which if you've ever seen 4D ultrasound imaging, it's absolutely spectacular. Uh, and, uh, and so she had all the tech, that, and of course they anticipated something like this, so they had done some ultrasounds with Abby prior and had that, you know, can ready to go if they needed it, and so she said these techs were yelling at her, you know, okay, are we going to stay live with Abby or are we going to go to the can stuff that we have? We got to know, we got to know, now, now, now. So Robin said, I said a quick prayer, and I said, just stay live. And the moment she said that, she said that baby just cooperated beautifully. Uh, and uh, they got the most stunning imagery. But this is the part that will move you. If I can get through this without, well, I'm not going to get through without, <laughs> without crying. She said they had audio. So the ultrasound comes up. And then the audio came on of the baby's heartbeat. She said... When that audio of the baby's heartbeat began to be blaring out, she said it, it was such a God thing. She said there was absolute, and I'm talking about absolute silence in Times Square. She, she said even the protesters, they dropped their signs, and they were looking up and listening with their mouths wide open. And uh, it was just a remarkable event. And uh, they're looking at doing more of these. Uh, concerns that you can pray for. Uh, one of the huge concerns is the increase in chemical abortions. We anticipate that 40% of all abortions are chemical abortions now. Uh, sort of the morning after pill deal. The exciting thing is uh, they are now, one of the aspects that we're, we're moving out in is reversing that. And if you're familiar with the procedure, it requires two pills. One is taken, and one is taken 72 hours later. And, and if you can get to the woman after she's taken the first pill, and this happens with many, where they begin to have second thoughts, regrets. And at this point, there have been over 1,000 babies saved uh, where that procedure has been reversed. And there's a lot more work, research being done related to that concerning pregnancy centers and how to expand that, how to market that. Uh, since that is an area we need to focus on. Another area of concern, of course, is the increasing hostility towards our pregnancy centers. And I, I would appreciate your prayers. That group has actually commissioned me to develop a um, Bible study, a, a series of lessons that will be distributed to pregnancy centers across the nation just to encourage them uh, not to retreat, but to stay true to Christ in this realm of ministry regardless of the price. 
Uh, the other great area of concern, I'll leave you with this, and this is something we've anticipated, but we're really seeing it hit the fan now, and that's our uh, adoption agencies and those that provide foster care. Uh, there are states that are beginning to uh, enact laws that mandate them to accept same-sex couples uh, for adoption. And, of course, you can imagine uh, what the position this puts the adoption agencies in where their license can be revoked if they do not comply. Uh, I mean, there, there are some suits going on right now uh, to try to uh, protect us against some of these laws, but that's, that's a big battle that's out there that has yet to be uh, uh, decided and will be decided, as you know, in the courts. And, uh, but uh, just pray God will enable us to remain faithful uh, through, it, uh, through it all. Uh, well, today we'll be moving in the Lord's Supper in just a moment, so the uh, message will be a little more abbreviated uh, this morning, but I, I think we still have adequate time to, to uh, cover this beautiful, beautiful uh, psalm that we'll look at. Uh, for the sake of our guest, uh, we're continuing uh, a study uh, of what is known in the Bible as the Psalms of the Degrees, which consists of Psalm 120 through 134. And again, for the sake of our guests, this is review for all our folks. I don't want to go into great detail. We're taking the position that King Hezekiah uh, compiled these 15 Psalms to commemorate the miracle of the degrees. And that was a miracle that God performed as a sign to Hezekiah that he would fulfill three promises. That he would heal Hezekiah from a terminal disease, add 15 years to Hezekiah's life, and then deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. Uh, I've entitled the sermon series, as you see in your notes, Celebrating Triumph Over Trouble through trust in God. The motivation for the title is the fact that the 15 Psalms seem to be arranged in five groups of trios. And with each trio, the first Psalm always speaks of trouble. The second Psalm always highlights trust in God. And then the third Psalm in the trio uh, speaks of triumph or uh, deliverance. And so today we come to Psalm 120. Which I've entitled Finding Security Through Trust in God. So please follow along in your notes as we read Psalm 125, and then we'll move right into the historical background that will sort of connect the psalm uh, with the, uh, uh, the history that it relates to. So uh, a beautiful little psalm, and many, most of these psalms of degrees are very, very short, but so powerful. Five verses here. It says, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous so that, or to the point that the righteous will, uh, would uh, not put forth their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel.
So look now at the historical background, and we'll uh, read through this, but uh, every now and then I'll stop to amplify some points. Uh, Psalm 125 is the third psalm in the second trio of the psalms of the degrees. Therefore, it speaks of triumph. Uh, The heart of the psalm is a celebration by God's people uh, for God's deliverance from wicked domination. The psalm opens with King Hezekiah's and the people of Jerusalem's confession of trust in God and dependence on God's protection and delivering them from King Sennacherib, uh, the wicked king of Assyria. Now just pause right there and look again at verses 1 through 3. The psalm opens with two very beautiful and powerful similes or, or word pictures to express the believer's security uh, in God. And the first simile is there in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Those who trust in the Lord are as, or you could say they are like, Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And, of course, Mount Zion is a reference to what? To the city of Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem, which was chosen by God to be the ultimate seat of sovereign power on earth. When Jesus returns, we know that He will rule the earth from His throne in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always been an emblem of durability and permanence. It has stood the test of time. Despite innumerable uh, conflicts, innumerable wars... People trying throughout history to eliminate them, yet the city still stands, and it still stands because its security ultimately rests on the covenant promises of God. And God is not finished with her yet, and He's going to continue to use her and His uh, people, as we know from the prophetic uh, scriptures. So, just like Jerusalem, those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved, is what He's saying, but abides forever. The second simile is verse 2. This beautiful picture is of the mountains that surround Jerusalem. He said, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion, which is surrounded by mountains. In the same way, the Lord what? Surrounds His people. Therefore, as we emphasized in our message even last Sunday, Absolutely nothing can touch God's people that doesn't have to what? First, go through God. And what a marvelous thought that brings us great security and assurance as believers. God's people abide forever because God what? Surrounds His people forever. And also notice that both verse 1 and verse 2 end with the same word. The word forever And folks, that is what we call eternal security, that those who trust in the Lord uh, will uh, abide forever. Now, this is why you read in verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Now, notice the word for, that first word in the verse. That connects verse 3 to the previous verses. And what it's saying is when God's people trust In God, who surrounds them, the assurance given in verse 3 is that a wicked government or a wicked power, evil power, 
will not be able to pressure, pressure the righteous to where they would put forth their hands to do wrong. In other words, the righteous will never comply to evil practices. They will never lower their standards of righteousness. Now, this does not mean that they will not be attacked for their faith. We know we get attacked for our faith. What this means in, in the end, true believers, the righteous, those who trust in God, will remain faithful to God. Because He's the one that's providing our security. He's the one that we're putting our uh, trust in. And this was the testimony of Hezekiah and Judah when attacked by the Assyrians. And is the testimony of the righteous today who living in an increasingly hostile world toward the Christian faith, remain faithful to Christ regardless the price. Now, go back to where we left off in the historical background, and you see next is a prayer asking God to show favor to the upright in heart. Look at verse 4 again. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to, the, to those who are upright in heart. Do not miss the simple observation that those who are good are those who are upright in heart. In other words, good works are the expression of an upright heart. This is the very essence of salvation. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by our efforts to try to please God or find God's acceptance. No, our salvation is totally dependent upon God's mercy and grace, but it's an individual trust in Christ. And his life is invaded by the Holy Spirit. He's given a new heart with new desires, with new want-tos. And then you'll see that, uh, that salvation expressed in good works through the gracious work of God in transforming that individual from the inside, uh, from the inside out. Uh, and then look at the last sentence in the historical background. The psalm ends with a warning, a warning which contrasts the insecurity of those who do not trust the Lord, verse 5. But it's for those who turn aside to their wicked ways, the Lord will lead them uh, away with the doers of iniquity. And then Psalm 125 concludes with the brief prayer, what? Peace be upon Israel. So look at the question in your sermon notes, which will lead us to the application of Psalm 125 to our lives today. And the question is this, how do you find security living in a very insecure and evil world? Reality is, and I think we would all admit this, we live in a world where the, all the efforts to make ourselves safe are ultimately an illusion in terms of absolute security. Just a simple example. You can put all the padlocks you want on your doors, all the bars you want on your windows to keep bad people out, but then you can drop dead on the inside of a heart attack. So, so the point is, ultimate security is, is, an, is, is an illusion, as, as an absolute. Uh, you know, finding it yourself in your, own, in your own efforts. Now, let me be careful that we don't go to some crazy extreme. This does not mean we should not take prudent ste steps to be safe. But ultimately, it comes down to what? Trusting God. It's ultimately trusting God. Now, you see this beautifully illustrated when the Assyrians attacked Hezekiah and the, and, and the city of Jerusalem. 
Now, just, just listen as I read for you. This is, if you want to jot down the reference, it's 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 2 through 8. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 2 through 8. And you'll see in this passage the balance between them taking prudent steps. But although they took those prudent steps, they weren't trusting in their efforts as much as they were trusting in God who could ultimately be the only one to provide them safety and security. It says, when Hezekiah realized that Sennacherib also intended to attack Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military advisors, and they decided to stop the flow of the springs outside the city. In other words, they said, we're basically not going to let him have any, any water. We're going we're to direct its flow inside the city. They organized, notice, they organized a huge work crew to stop the flow of the springs, cutting off the brook that ran through the fields. For they said, why should the kings of Assyria come here and find plenty of water? Then Hezekiah worked hard at repairing all the broken sections of the wall, erecting towers, and constructing a second wall outside the first. He also reinforced the supporting terraces in the city of David and manufactured large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate. So those are the prudent steps they took. And those were good steps to take in light of what was coming at them. But now notice the balance. Then Hezekiah encouraged them by saying, Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army. For there is a power far greater on our side. Not talking about the prudent steps they took, right? It's talking about God. He says, he may have a great army, and he did, as we've talked about. It was the greatest military force on planet Earth at the time. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. Hezekiah's words greatly encourage the people. So again, I just want you to see there is, there is that balance. Yes, we're to take prudent steps, but ultimately we trust God because that's the only place you can find true security. Now look now at the first application from Psalm 125. And we'll move through these quickly so we can get through the Lord's Supper. Security comes from hanging on to God by faith. Security comes from hanging on to God by faith. Verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Circle the word trust. The reason I use the language hanging on to God is because the Hebrew word translated trust in verse 1 literally means to hang on to something. To hold on to something in the sense of relying on it, not yourself, but it, for true stability and security. In other words, if I want to be truly uh, stable and secure, living in a world filled with insecurities, 
I need to find something stable and secure to hold on to. Something that I know will never let go of me. (laughs) Something that will never fail me. Something that will never forsake me. And folks, I know of only one place to find that, and that is in a relationship with Jehovah God Himself. The only place. Reality is, if you are God's child, God has taken hold of you. Amen? I love that Hebrew 6 passage. Referring to Jesus, talks about we have, we have an, an anchor that is sure and steadfast, immovable. And that anchor is Jesus. And he's anchored where? In heaven. Far above the strifes and conflicts and problems of this world. And that's what gives us stability in this life. So the point is, if God is taking hold of you, why would you ever want to let go of him for some other security blanket. Look at the verses in your notes that just sort of reinforce this, this truth of, of trusting God and, and, uh, and as you do, uh, being unshakable. Uh, Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9, I have set the Lord, I've set the Lord continually before me. Again, notice where the eyes are directed, where the thoughts are directed, the affections, the allegiance of this individual. Everything is not on the circumstances, not on their prudent efforts. It's on the Lord. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And keep in mind, all of the, in all these passages... It's in the context of strife and conflict and persecution. Look at Psalm 21, verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be, what? Shaken. Psalm 62, verses 6 through 8. I love this. He only, circle the word only. I don't have a divided heart, the psalmist is saying. I'm not trusting God in God and then this something else I realize my only safety is in God alone so he says he only is my rock and my salvation my stronghold I shall not be shaken on God my salvation my glory rest circle the word rest we'll come back to that in a moment the rock of my strength my refuge is in God trust in him at all times O people pour out your heart before him Why? Because God is a refuge for us. He has surrounded us. How do you know that you're truly trusting God with a single heart that's not divided? Well, we just read it. The reason you can know that you're trusting God only, as the psalmist said, trusting God alone when you know rest. True faith, true trust, reliance on God brings rest over against anxiety and worry. I've shared this many times from this pulpit. I mean, the, 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 it's interesting 
when Jesus went into his long discourse about anxiety, where did he begin it all? He said, you can't follow God with a divided heart. You can't trust God and mammon, man, uh, material resources or anything else. It's God and God alone. And see, when I'm not trusting God alone, I'm trusting God in this, whatever this other security blanket, when this security blanket gets threatened, whether it's a relationship, whether it's my job, whether it's money, whatever it might be, I panic. And it's what we talked about last week. That's why God is so, it it appeared, it's because he loves us, but at times it seems he's so ruthless in kicking out the crutches from underneath of us, snatching those security blankets from us, because he wants us to learn to lean on him alone. Because he knows that's where we're only going to find true rest. So when I'm not, as, it, as, as the psalmist talked about uh, earlier, continually putting God before me, I'm looking to my circumstances. And when I look to my circumstances, I'm so worried about outcomes. I don't know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen in a week? What's going to happen? You know, is it, is it going to be a good outcome, bad outcome? Well, if I keep my eyes on God... I know he surrounds me. Nothing can touch me unless it gets through him. And if he lets it get through him to get to me, it's for my good, and therefore I can rest. And I can even rejoice and be thankful. In the midst of the, it doesn't take away the pain, doesn't take away the perplexity and the difficulty, but there's a deep, deep abiding rest and joy. So do you want security living in an insecure and evil world? Then what you need to do is hop up in your daddy's arms. I'm talking about your heavenly daddy. And get quiet. And just rest and relax and trust his covenant promises that those who trust in him will not be shaken, that they will abide forever, and that he has you covered. Amen? Amen. Look at the second application Security comes from being hemmed in by God's presence. Security comes from being hemmed in by God's presence. Verses 2 and 3. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. I I absolutely, uh, you might say, why did you use that phrase, hemmed in? I, I did that very deliberately, very intentionally. I actually love the picture of being hemmed in by God because, and here's why. And, and these first two things I said, we, we emphasized this very strongly last week. I love this not only because it means God is in between me and whatever would frighten me. I mean, my, my big God, no matter what I encounter in life, God's out in front of me. And he's between me and whatever might frighten me, whatever might come to me. That's true, praise him. It not only means, as we just mentioned, that he's not going to let anything get through to him to get to me unless he knows it ultimately will work for my spiritual benefit and his, his, his glory. But it also means this, and we did not emphasize this last week. God knows and demerits every weakness. He knows my every character flaw, deficiency, sin. He knows my every vulnerability. 
And he often hems me in, fences me in to protect me, not from my enemies or my circumstances, but from myself. We just don't have time to turn to it. Just jot down right here in your notes. This is one of the greatest examples of this in the Scripture. And this is often missed when people go to this portion of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's thorn in the flesh. You remember that? Where Paul had this thorn in the flesh, right? And it was painful. It was awful. It was miserable. He begged. He cried out to God three different times. Deliver me. Take it from me. And God says, nope but my grace will be sufficient for you. And of course, when Paul heard that, he changed his whole attitude. He said, well, I'm going to stop whining and start shining. I mean, goodness gracious, if my loving God has allowed this, he's allowing this to take me into a greater dependence upon him, a greater desperation for where I learned to lean on him, and in that intimacy, find true joy. And peace. Therefore, I'm going to rejoice in my infirmity. I'm going to rejoice in my thorn. Because when I'm weak, then what? I'm strong. What we often miss in that passage is the reason why God gave him the thorn. Paul talked about how these wonderful revelations were given to him. And he says twice, two different times he repeats in that passage. The reason God gave him the thorn was to him Paul in so that he would not become prideful, that he would not exalt himself. Now listen to me. The passage doesn't say that Paul became prideful. It doesn't accuse Paul of, of pride. But it definitely acknowledges he was vulnerable to pride in light of what he had experienced. And God, knowing his vulnerability, knowing his weakness in his human flesh, he said, Paul, I'm giving you this thorn in the flesh so you don't blow yourself up as if you're something really, really special. In other words, I'm popping your balloon before you get arrogant about who you are, what I've shown you, and how I've used you in your life. To me, that is so comforting. I'll never forget. I don't know how many of y'all remember. I think his name was Miller. He was a, a, a Bible teacher that came here years ago. He was in a wheelchair. I think his name was David Miller. Same name as our Minister of Education. And he gave one of the most stunning messages I've ever heard on God's restraining grace. And he was talking about this very point that it would be fascinating when we get to eternity and God gives us the opportunity, if he does, to look back how we'll see God intervene in things like we're just talking about to prevent us from falling into sin or to falling into our own, uh, uh, you know, deficiencies and, and propensities. Again, let's all admit, typically we're our, own, we're our own worst enemy, right? And so we need God to hem us in. And see, God, God does that to keep me dependent upon him. So that I, I am leaning on him, and I find that intimacy with him. Look at these marvelous verses that just talk about 
being hemmed in in a positive way about God, being encircled, surrounded by God. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.10, he encircled him, talking about Jacob. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. You know how sensitive you are about keeping the pupil of your eye safe. Uh, I love that. He encircled him. He cared for him. And you can substitute your name right there. God has encircled you. He's encircled Andy Merritt. He cares for Andy Merritt. And he's guarding me as the pupil of his eye. And and I would encourage you to do that. Take these verses and just put your name everywhere you see these pronouns. You are my hiding place, 32.7. Psalm 32.7. You preserve me. There's that thought of being hemmed in. He not only protects me from evil, he preserves me, keeps me uh, uh, from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. And this is a correction you need to make in your notes. I put two different passages together. That next uh, sentence is from Psalm 139, 5. So Psalm 34, 7 is the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. And then Psalm 139, 5, Psalm 139, 5, this was my mistake in the notes. It says, you... Here it is, him, me, in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Uh, Zechariah 2.5, how do you like this beautiful picture? Then, this is God speaking, then I myself will be a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem, says the Lord, and I will be the glory inside the city. And in Job 1.10, one of the greatest proof texts, of the hedge of protection that God has put around the believer, this is Satan complaining to God about protecting his boy Job. And Satan says to God, Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? If you're familiar, you know, say, you know, God asked Satan, he initiated the whole process, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan goes, goodness gracious, you've bought that boy off. You've put her heads around him on every side. I can't get to him. I can't touch him. If you would just let me get through, if you would just let me to bring some pain in his life, he will curse you to your face. Because all you've done is your, your, your gifts and your kindnesses, you, you've just bought him off. And really, he's just a little spoiled brat. He doesn't care about you. He just cares about himself. And so God says, all right. You can get in. But if you're familiar with the story, we don't have time to get into it. He put what? Limitations on Satan. He allowed Satan to go so far with Job in terms of his health, in terms of great tragedy and grief, but he wouldn't let him take his life. And in the end, what? Job passed the test. Though he slay me, I will trust him. I will trust him. And though I may be confused and have lost God in the pride, he knows the way I take. And when he has refined me, I will come forth as gold. And, uh, and just a, a great proof text there. And the point is this. The point is this. If God loves you like that, and he does, if he's put a hedge around you, if he's surrounded you, if he's hemmed you in with his presence, in order that no Assyrian or adversity can attack you unless it's for your good, but also to restrict you to, as we talked about, to protect you from your own vulnerabilities. Well, here's the question. Then why do we complain about adversity and resist its discipline when it's for our good? 
when it's an act of love? Why do we waste our sorrows, waste the adversity, waste the spanking in a sense, because we never learn the lesson? To submit to God because He is for me. Again, I love the concept, the one who loves me most knows what is best for me. And again, let me emphasize, I've I've emphasized this often in this series, but I want to keep emphasizing it. If if we really hear what's being said here, we do not have to worry about outcomes and results. Because he's wiser than I am. He knows best. And do you understand what that does if you realize that? If I don't have to worry about outcome and results, then I can keep my focus on God. I will continually set God before me because I'm trusting him. I don't have to worry about the outcome and results. This is the cure for anxiety. It's giving God the outcome. It's coming to God and saying, God, Thank you that with joy, I don't have to do this in fear, but with joy, I can give you the freedom. Lord, I give you, I give it to you right now. I give you the freedom to arrange the all things of my life in the way that you deem best, and I'm going to trust you. And that's where rest comes in the presence of God. Uh, Very, very quickly, point three, security comes from praying for help from God's grace. Security comes for, from praying for help. Don't you like the balance there? There's this wonderful picture of security, but what does it lead to? Urgency in prayer. Not passivity, but that confidence that I have in God's security emboldens. It, it motivates my prayer life. Verse 4, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in heart. So that bullet point, confidence in God's protection always blossoms into prayer for God's help. Because I'm not trusting these other things. I'm trusting God and God alone. I love the way Hebrews 4, 16 reads in the J.B. Phillips translation. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with fullest confidence that we may receive mercy for our failures and grace to help in our time of need. And then the fourth last point, security comes from living in harmony with God's truth. Verse 5, but as for those who turn aside to their wicked ways... The Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. I'll let you read Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. That is the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. And that shows what happens when a person lines his life up in harmony with God's Word and when a person chooses not to. And the wise person, of course, is the one that what? Chooses to not only be a hearer of God's Word, but of doer of God's Word. So security comes from hanging on to God by faith, being hemmed in by God's presence, praying for God's help, and then living in harmony with God's truth. We come to the Lord's Supper now. The key word in the Lord's Supper is what? Remember. It is time to remember who Jesus is and what He did. And this, this is what I just want to make an appeal to you as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. The first thing you do when we come to the Lord's Supper is to engage your mind and direct them towards Jesus and remember who He is and what He did for you. And as you focus 
on this amazing sacrifice for his life as he paid for the penalty of your sin, that's going to ignite your emotions, your affections. So yes, we not only come remembering, engaging our minds, our thought processes, but we should come to this table with heartfelt affection. We should have that attitude of Mary of Bethany who brought her alabaster vial of perfume and poured it on the Savior. And we need to come, our lives are that alabaster vial of perfume. So, Lord, I want to lavish you with my affections. I want to lavish you with my love, but we don't stop there. It also should involve our wills as we present our bodies, all that we are, all that we possess, a living sacrifice to God because that's the reasonable act of worship. So that's my appeal today. That as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and in light of who He is, what He did for us, that you, out of love for Him, would turn away from all other distractions and focus on Jesus and Jesus alone and the sacrifice He made for you, His death, burial, and resurrection. That you'll know that reigniting your emotions and your affections, and as you come, that you will lavish your affection on Him, and that you'll realize then, He is worthy of all that you are and all that you possess. And that you would give him not only your thoughts, not only your affections, but what? Your allegiance. So that's what we want to give him today. Our attention, our affections, and our allegiance. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. And Jesus, thank you for voluntarily giving your life for us. Thank you that you, the one who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, that we today might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Uh, Thank you for the mercy and grace that you've extended to us, and therefore, Lord, may we show and demonstrate that you are worthy as we give you now our attention, as we give you our affections and our allegiance. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.